and welcome to episode 17 of Poetry Worth Hearing, hosted by me, Kathleen McPhillamy, and with music by Alex Heen. This episode focuses on conflicts of identity, which for me is reflected in my possession of two passports, one Irish and one British. However, there are many different forms of conflict, whether related to nationality, ethnicity, gender, sexuality or religion, which find their way into poetry. This episode features a reading by Rachel Klein, followed by an edited interview with me. There are also poems by Simon Madrell, Fiona Perry, P. Srivan Srilakshmi, Roddy Maud Roxby, Margot Myers, Tricia Broomfield, Tom McCall, Martin Jago, Jane Thomas, Helen Overall and Deborah Cox. Then there is an extract from a long poem by Adnan Alsaeg, which is part translated and read by Jenny Lewis. Our final two poets are Richard Lister and Pat Winslow. We begin with Rachel Klein reading some poems, mostly from her recent book, You'll Never Be Anyone Else, published by Seren Press. Then she talks to me about the conflicts of identity she has experienced as a Jewish lesbian poet. What I value in Rachel's work is not only how she exposes the prejudices of others, but how she explores the ways in which we internalise identity stereotypes, often so as to be harmful to ourselves, and also how she questions the labelling or tribalism the search for identity may bring about. So thank you very much, Kathleen, for inviting me to uh, look at how we experience conflict with our identities and the kind of pressures and influences that affect us. So I've focused a few poems from my collection around this theme. And I'll start with Girl Golem, uh, which has become a kind of alter ego of otherness for me. And the golem was a mythical man made out of clay and spells to protect Jews from persecution. And he had truth written on his forehead and one of God's names on his tongue. Girl Golem. The night they blew life into her, she clung bat-like to the womb wall. A girl golem, a late bonus before the final egg dropped. She divided, multiplied, her handbuds bloomed, her tail vanished into its coccyx, and the lub-dub of her existence was bigger than her nascent head. She was made as a keep watch in case new nasties tried to take them away. The family called her Chuchkula, their little knadle, said she helped to make up for lost numbers, as if she could compensate for millions. With X-ray eyes, she saw she was trapped in a home for the deaf and blind, watched them blunder into each other's neuroses. A task to hold up their world, be their assimilation ticket, find a nice boy and muzzled off grandchildren. But she was a hotchpotch golem, a schmotter garment that would never fit, trying to find answers without a handbook. 
When she turned 18, she walked away, went in search of her own kind, tore their God from her mouth. So um, the next poem, again written from a Jewish point of view, is about how when you are in a minority or feel the fear of, of, of prejudice, how you can adjust your behaviour in public. Like, for example, if you're gay, would you hold hands and kiss in public? Or if you're Jewish, do you change the way you speak or act? Duolingo. Code switching for Jews. 1970 edition. Lesson one at home. Emphasise emotions with vivid gestures. Always answer a question with a question. Angst is compulsory as is kvetch and guilt. Joke in the old tongue. Smack lips around schleck, lobber, schlimozzle. Lesson two at mealtime. It is usual to talk over each other with your mouth full. Expect more than you can eat. Learn to tolerate cold, chopped and boiled gefilte fish. It's tradition. Compare Mother Strudel with Mrs Lippmann's and when guests are present, grill them with personal questions. Lesson three, away from home. Avoid loud colours and remarks. Avoid complaining or personal feelings. Avoid acting like a nebuchadnezzar victim. Avoid acting like a banker's wallet or a vegan lefty. Yes, both. You think I invent these Meshuggah slurs? Lesson four in social situations. When refused membership to local societies, for example, the golf club, apologise. If they call you Jew girl or ask what you do for Christmas, smile. Choose only words that are formica smooth. Never make a drama out of a trifle. Never dominate the conversation. Try not to interrupt. Try harder. Beware, those colour-coded smiles conceal teeth. The next poem is about what's called microaggression, everyday prejudice, casual remarks that stereotype or assume. And, well, does ignorance excuse it? Other minority groups may relate to some of the examples. And the title is a dilemma that Jews often find when they try to fill out those ethnic bits of the questionnaire on a form. So it's called white slash other question mark. What are you doing for Christmas? I'm Jewish, I'd reply. Yes, they'd insist, but what are you doing for Christmas? Sheila said, but that's just ignorance, not prejudice. Shamed for exaggerating, as if ignorance has less sting. It wasn't just the boy spitting Christ killer in my face or silent stare of classmates when my best friend said, you can't let Jews in, they only take over. It was the tiny corrosion of men whispering in my ear, you Jewesses, so dark, exotic, and people's low hiss. You're so full on, such a victim. At least with my skin, I can hide, be traitor to myself. This next poem is a much more recent one, so it's not in the collection, but it's about how we internalise prejudice 
and again from a Jewish perspective, but it applies to other forms. Taking it in. It is very hard to look absorbed hatred in the face, Audrey Lord. No finger-wagging accusation, no spit words, pushy, filth. Just a faint odour of fart hovers in the polite space between you and their plum-mouthed veneer. You swallow the shame stink, feel it seep into head and heart, feel it sink into the sediment of hand-me-down terrors. You feel it becoming your conflict skin. You fill your own mind with thought venom, hiss at your own kind, too loud, showy bastard, pathetic victim. What hope of peace when the war is inside and the enemy is you? You will find yourself rejoicing at the compliment and you will pin it as a medal to your chest every time they say, I never knew you were Jewish. So, unfortunately, after a very long, relatively quiet period, anti-Semitism is on the rise again through conspiracy groups and uh, current politics. Dragging out told tropes used by Nazis and conflating Jews with Israeli politics, coining the new term Zio. The schnoz. No cute buttons for us. No retrousse. Just a big fuck-off hook with wind-tunnel nostrils sucking up everyone's money and stuffed with your Zio conspiracy bogies. Our nose grows with the lies you tell about us, a gansamacher of schnozzles, a Geiger counter that detects the whiff of the yid, the reek of hatred. We walk into a room nose first, Sniff out muttered asides, the glances that clock are naked, greedy, in-your-face, dodgy schnoz. So being born Jewish was my first challenge and being gay came a, a lot later. And it took decades until I felt comfortable enough to deal with that as well. I've written less about this, um, <laughs> perhaps if I'd had successful relationships I might have written more anyway girl golem wonders what to wear her golem body is obliged to step into stockings strap on a skirt that exposes the tender gash between her legs she longs for trees and dungarees, struggles to cross ankles, tuck them to the side, knees together, hands folded she feels as welcome as a hornet at a hen party. Age five, behind the garden shed, she tries to scoop out a pear penis to wear, attempts to stick it onto her tiny bud. Like the rest of her, it doesn't fit. When men whistle, she dons a monkey grin. In bed, she utters moans in all the right places. She decides she's better off solo cannot imagine herself wheeling a gay golem baby. So um, this next poem is, 
it comes from humor, which is very, very central for me, and um, and also popularly recognized within Jewish culture. And it can be an effective way to articulate difficult issues. The other thing is that I uh, I class myself as Northern until I left home at 18. I grew up just outside Liverpool and recall Coronation Street's first episodes. So this is a prose poem. My life as a soap. You're right, love, is the title. The opening shot pans red brick terraced houses while the brass band theme fades and I utter my opening line. Well, I'll go to our scullery, mum. Smell that germicide on me hands, I say to the woman apparently playing my mother. You daft apeth, she replies. Gracie Field shrieks, Sally, Sally, pride of our alley from the wireless on the sideboard. Our living room is a brightly lit studio set. It's painted flats and in darkness. Steam pours out as mum opens the oven. Dinner's ready, lay table, lass. Suddenly the director yells, cut, continuity please. We're surrounded by makeup artists who shove a dark wig on my mother's head, wipe her face with a remover that smells of lard. She's told to play her character older with a Jewish voice and I'm given a false nose to wear. Roast pork is replaced by a big pot of chicken soup. The titles change to Oi Vey Love and my new line is What Can I Do, Mama? The radio switches to klezmer melodies. I strive to turn every remark into a question, to shrug and use my hands more. Mother now clutches her chest with a gasp whenever catastrophes mentioned on the news. I ask the director how to play the part when I'm also supposed to be a closet lesbian with a crush on her teacher. Hmm, I find myself lingering over the thought of her face. Stick to the script, he says. Inattention's good for your character. Work it out. So this next poem was inspired by Caroline Bird's prize-winning poem about London's first lesbian club. It was a cellar bar on the King's Road, which I visited in the 70s. Unfitting. Like a glove on the wrong hand. The moon out at noon, I was salt in tea, shoving my leg into a sleeve, stuck on the singles table at weddings, stifling the crush on my best friend, calling my partner they, or trying to book a double room in a B&B. How I distanced myself from those women in the bar on the King's Road where some wore cufflinks, others heavy perfume, tight dresses. I couldn't bear a skirt without the safety of a gusset. Chips from my shoulders make a magnificent outfit, gloved, salty and stitched with gold. So I'll finish these, uh, this reading with my title poem and um, take it as you like, but it's my anthem, I guess. You'll never be anyone else. So you, yes, you with your warts and wings will just have to do. Acceptance is your food and shelter without which you are brushwood left to the mercy of any foul wind. Stop drinking the poison labelled hate me. It's that simple. 
I didn't say easy. Thank you. Several of the poems do use humour. Yes. You are able to say things that someone who isn't, for example, Jewish, wouldn't be able to say. Do, does that ever bother you? I think, I mean, humour, I, I, it's so such a central part of me. And I think with various minority groups, it's also a survival strategy. I remember when I was at school using humour to try and win friends, but it was very, it was kind of compulsive. I just kept doing it. It must have been an absolute onslaught. It was, you know, it was like a nervous thing. I think it can be very in a very effective way to convey difficult truths or, or issues so that it's accessible and palatable. It's instead of ranting, for example. I think I've had to learn how to use it more skillfully over the years. And I know that sometimes I, I realised that perhaps my humour has not been appropriate or it, it seemed flippant talking about making fun of issues that are very dark. But I think those people who have a dark humour, that's what they use it for. And I've also learned that it's okay to make humour about yourself, but it's a much more tricky area to make humour about other people. You know, and, but I've also been careful, with, particularly with Duolingo, to talk about it as the 1970 edition. You know, things have changed a lot. For example, what are you doing for Christmas seems like a stupid thing to debate these days. Even then, I didn't, I didn't particularly consider it anti-Semitic. It mm. wasn't until I went to a conference for Jewish gays and lesbians, or it was an American-based thing. And there was an American writer who was talking about all these casual phrases that I hadn't really thought of as anti-Semitic. Yeah, I still had a reaction to them. I would still start to clench and go silent. You know, we're, we're not really talking about the issue of Christmas. We're talking about stereotyping and generalisation. And I think we're all guilty, I include myself, of unconscious generalizations and prejudice. And I'm having to educate myself because I, you know, I was coming a cropper even while I was writing some of the po poems in my book around this whole issue of intersectionality. For example, talking about the feminist movement. Now, being white and a woman is not the same as being black and a woman. So we don't, we can't, just make a generalization across the board about being discriminated against as a woman. It's very particular. And I mean, you've mentioned your Irish background and how that also has its labels and its its prejudices mm. you know, from Northern Ireland. And also I've come across the word problematic, that making generalizations or making what seem like casual remarks can be problematic. And I think that's also, it seems to me, to be a lot to do with um, social media. You asked me at one point why I would choose such an image because the golem was not a particularly attractive creature. Um, it was a bit lumpen, and, um, but it's, it, I don't know, when I first came across it, I, when it came first came to my mind, it was more about being the one who was aware of the behavior in the family, the dysfunctional behavior. Yeah. And having that awareness, it was almost like that I had to be the eye of the family in a way. 
I just realized, I, I think I realized I struck poetic gold with that particular idea of the girl golem. Yeah, interesting aura about it, really. But what sort of comes through in the poems is the sense of not fitting because you are awkward, you are you are a bit out of place. I think that sense of trying to grow up and fit into, particularly in the 50s and 60s, of fit into the kind of girl that people expected you to be. Absolutely. And I really didn't. And I I grew up in a very small town. And there's a group of us who who found each other because we were all creative and a bit alternative. And the town was very conventional, um, conformist. And it was like a complete refuge to be able to celebrate each other's difference, to celebrate, you know, our individual thinking, our quirky minds and, and enjoy ourselves. Well, that sounds very strong today, isn't it? I mm. mean, I feel very sorry for young people. I mean, the kind of expectations that are put on them as to how they look, how they dress, what they wear. I didn't actually feel like I, I couldn't. I couldn't sense that I was a proper woman and that it was not till I was training as a psychotherapist in my 30s that I started to find my own sense of being a woman. Your own path, your own identity, your own, I'm not going to say the word identity, who you uh, want to be. I mean, you can't be anyone else, no matter what labels you try out. As a person, I didn't really feel at home in lesbian community. Yeah. Yeah, I have many lesbian friends. I have many lesbian and gay friends. The same with Jewish culture. I mean, one of the, um, you know, if we're going to split hairs, and you will understand this because of the sort of thing of Protestant and Catholic, because I didn't grow up as an Orthodox Jew, Orthodox Jews didn't consider me Jewish. So I wasn't Jewish enough or I was too Jewish. You know, it was that kind of, where do I fit kind of dilemma. I think, as you say, we we think in terms of categorizing and labels. And I think labels can be extremely useful. They are very necessary. I mean, I have a couple of friends who've recently been diagnosed as neurodivergent, which I think is the current acceptable term. Um, And it's answered a lot of questions about themselves. And I'm thinking of many clients, for example, that, you know, like mental health labels can be crushing and very unuseful, but they can also be freeing. It's about not being a label. I am not a label. I have labels, but I'm not there. When you asked me to compare this current manner, mode of anti-Semitism, I guess partly that's fueled by Israeli politics and the uh, the sort of influx of Muslim culture that we have, you know, where that whole argument, that whole terrible argument, which m- makes me think of Jacob and Esau, really. It, it kind mm. of goes back to biblical times. But it, it, it's it's horrific. I, you know, have absolutely, I've never, I've deliberately never wanted to go to Israel. I don't identify with it. I understand how it arose, how it was born. I don't agree with Israeli politics, and yet there is that conflation. It's like all Irish are terrorists, all Muslims are terrorists, all Jews are uh, bankers' wallets, or Zios. And I, it, it, it's that lumping together of people, isn't it? And it's frightening. You know, that fear is still there. I was born just four years after the war. 
I arrived at a point where the generation like my sister, who was who lived through the war, who was born just before the war, you know, they were so busy trying to assimilate and disguise themselves. Yes, and I, I noticed you use the word assimilate in that first poem. And I thought it's kind of ironic using the word assimilate in a poem which is so about hanging on to Jewishness. It, it's the kind of that, that exemplifies the double thinking that's going on all the time. Yes. And, you know, I guess it's also true about sexual orientation, too. I mean, now these issues are right out there. Um, and it's not that things have changed that much. I mean, there are terrible things going on. But, you know, I feel safe enough at least to come out and voice it. It depends where you live, of course, as you were saying about intersectionality. And also for a young person, I yeah. think the path is still horrendously difficult. Yeah. And yet there are other things that are a lot easier for them than they were for us. It's yeah. just different, isn't it? I think the other thing to remember is that uh, that's so different from our day is people have access to information and can make connections that we never could. That's true. But there's also, as we said before, the dangers of social media driving people to making the wrong assumptions, the wrong connections. Yeah, yeah. all yeah. true. But we'll still never be anyone else. So true. Thank you very much, Rachel, for the poems and for talking about them. You can find more details about Rachel and her publications in poetryworthhearing.biz. You'll also find more about our next poet, Simon Madrell from the Isle of Man, whose poems negotiate the complexities of growing up queer and Manx, two sources of pride. This is a reading from his book, The Whole Island. The the final sentence of the titular poem, which in Manx Gaelic is um, in Slain Elian, is on the edge of extinction, on the edge of the whole island, the edge of our language hovers. And it inspired this first poem. Our language drips. In the dark, I am afraid of meeting my emptiness. But I must return to the isle of my birth before I become my own extinction. Our native Igilg was nearly silenced from what only it can express. I nearly zipped my own lip in a black-bagged lack of understanding that it is language that restores our place, that speaks louder than any plinth, that, when it cries, deepens the sea. It is near impossible to describe the sun rising, but it is possible to feel the language of the sun setting on darkness. Igilg is um is Manx Gaelic and um this is um also used in the second poem, which is called Fodiac, which um like the Welsh word um hirayeth um basically means um 
homesickness, nostalgia, and longing. Fodiak. He asks if I yearn for it, if we have a word for it, like Hiraeth, how he feels when away from his other Celtic home, and I brush it off like a speck of fluff, as if it's obvious a queer would hate being kept in a beautifully busy cottage, tucked away in a private bay below Milner's tower. It's a folly to think I want to be where he is, to think I could add anything to this, like my pride in having a scuba dive the world over in the marine biology station here at Port Aaron, how it's now closed. Manan and Bacchilea is the Celtic son of the sea, uh, son of the Irish sea god Leah, um, and the lord of man. Um, and according to legend, the creator of man too. Manan and Bacchilea. Nothing has changed. Mourning a ruined family, his lost humanity, inflicting wounds on the other world. His tears, pearls that fled the sea, turn into that single mountain island where I was raised from my mother's womb, gasping for life in a tent for seven days, seven years, or seven score months, I now forget when I cried. It was on the inside, growing a cardiac rock with lichen cracks and moss where I weep. The next poem, Puffin Mother, it's probably worth mentioning that the puffiness, puffiness is in fact the Manx Shearwater, um, and the Ironfeller and Rothen are Manx dialect and Gaelic for um, Rattus Rattus, or in this particular case, Rattus Norvegicus. Um, which I'm sure you know what that means. This is Puffin Mother. You abandoned the nest left our sanctuary, pushed away by the iron fella, also eating up puffiness, puffiness, who only appears to be you. We perch plastic models to bring you back, better versions of ourselves, perfect in the way no offspring can be. We played sounds of domestic bliss borrowed from a faraway colony. We lined up loudspeakers atop the cliffs like a picket fence singing apple pie. Whether due to this highly fabricated world or Rothen's absence, you returned not home exactly because you were a different mother. But you came back just the same and are in fact still here even so long since you went away traced more banks gaelic means trust hope and confidence 
A three-legged man was bored of the island and caught a ship through the universe where he reached a dark puddle, standing on one leg, another lagging, shaking between fear and anticipation, the third leg stepped into the puddle. This leg, certain it wasn't a black hole. After all, there was no event horizon, meaning the puddle edges didn't glow. However, his mother popped up and said, only the boring get bored. So the man, with all those legs intact, came back to the island and visited all of the places he ever loved. On the edge of everywhere, there is always something new. And all the scenes we've played before never feel the same. In 1991, I stepped out of my skin. For the first time, there was a young man sucking a cock like he'd arrived back home at last. Not in the sense of the 70s oblong blocks of Manx ices unwrapped and shoved into a round cone, but more so that rocket lolly you remember, wide at the bottom, ridged with a sweet-lipped tip of white chocolate. The 90s wonder at what dialing 0898 offered. Cool, fresh and wild for it. Until just after that moment of melting white, hundreds and thousands flashed by. Now to expose, to survive so raw, I crawled back into my skin, sagging and dragging itself to the bathroom. Then I threw up. This is according to the signs. The footpath to Porter Willen is not passable at high water. My mind floods and races with anticipation as I circle the sea-walled red Napoleon passing under a Civil War battery like we face in our own islands. The unoccupied land where I find a tiny bathing creek looking purpose-made for the likes of us. Private and delicious, like the young men I imagine, in this cove, a secret space to be ourselves, with careless abandon and timely attention to all the tides, flowing inside, even rippling in our deepness, one could be left alone, with the only escape being those uphill trails to Gobnerona, paths within bracken and olden woods, a maze hiding many answers and trees with many arms. Thank you so much. My final poem. The Vikings didn't need roads to plunder and burn wooden vessels, graves, not trick, 
backs, a queer-shaped ball kicked about and back and over that wall. Without the love of Antinous, rich dukes envied its land and its rights, no sooner grasped than sold to be owned by George the Third in 1765, a hanging chalice. Freedom is an oxymoron. Flourishing is a drag queen owning herself. Thank you, Simon. And now, Fiona Perry, an Oxfordshire poet, but originally from Northern Ireland. Fusion. When I recount the details of my previous life, I always find myself beginning in the same place. My first incarnation was as one of 25 tin soldiers whose progenitor was an old tin spoon. My lack of completeness, a missing leg to be exact, was the first sensation I became aware of. That airy nothingness below my hip, like an optical illusion, melding my body to the surroundings. But also, that sense of my heart buzzing like a drunken mosquito as her spangly sash came into view. A paper ballerina frozen in quasi devant. The sublime arm position, the effortless sexual grace. It took me days to notice the missing crossover leg, that delicious barely thereness echoing my own. I was immersed in Edenic trance. When faced with such dazzling beauty, however, the evil beyond us is rendered invisible. So, to become what we later became involved agonies, the brazier's shrieking flames. The maid Clara, a farmer's daughter, found us the next morning. My darling spangle and my body fused together to form a solid tin heart smothered in ash. Now we serve as a clapper in the mouth of a bell that hangs about the neck of the girl's favourite heifer. She parades around the mountains, soft and doe-eyed. It is said every bell has its own unique dintinibulation. Ours is mainly the sound of us making merry, chiming out our blessedness deep into the valley. A poem of shifting identities. Next, P. Srivi Shalakshmi interrogates prejudice and racism. Skin. Bear yourself uncovered. It is a free world. Yet, entrapped in your own skin, discover what if it peels off? We scrape off? Would it be different? Would we have different colours? Have colours of our own? The skin is a cover all right. Layers and layers beneath it lies you. 
the you you know and not just the cover a shield that you cannot see for yourself but are obliged to see from another the other who sees it as not you the other who sees it as not beautiful the other who sees not beneath the cover how would they know you how would they know to see beyond the layer and following that roddy maud roxby her two feathers by night the little ghost girl came to whisper to the welsh boy you are a girl in the wrong body so he grew always uncertain he married a sympathetic woman they studied together native american ways in the asylum his hair beard gentle face and his white dress attract a crowd they call him jesus he feels like a woman accepts their prayers and says nothing after the operation she takes a new name and with her wife follow her guide snow woman who sends them to the albert hall they each wear two feathers the tribal spokesman in his white stetson rebukes europeans who wear feathers she stands and speaks in a foreign tongue she invokes her spirit grandfather his voice comes through you're wrong you forget your own feathers the feather is our antennae it's a pleasure to welcome back margot myers she gives us three short poems with different aspects of the struggle for identity and individuation So this is one of me asleep in my pram. He conceived me with light and shadow, each shutter click a little death, exposed me in the dark cupboard under the stairs, red shaded bicycle lamp, clockwork timer, a chemical bath. Unspooled, we were 10 in embryo, nine of us rejected for a drooping eye a windy grimace, a knitted bonnet pulled askew. What happened to those other unruly selves, pegged up to dry like wet knickers over the bath? Can you hear me? Remember when I flew over our house? I had the whole world rolling in the palm of my hand. Crouching hedges, shallow fields, the glint and lure of spire of steel. Then in the garden, or this is how I imagine it, your upturned face, mouth an O like an empty cup. Sometimes, I think, spooning the sprinkles from my second cappuccino, that I have become a stranger to myself. The truth is, I left my lung 
by the red rose tree, my heart on the hall stand, my tongue at the bottom of the peak Freen's biscuit tin, Gary Baldy, custard creams, rich tea. Mum? Morning. A thin note of birds through the double glazing. Her phone still warm from the pillow. She holds it like a looking glass and is charmed by the symmetry of her eyebrows, the deep blue dressing gown, and how the silky stitches circle the collar like ripples on a pond. A bespectacled nymph emerging from the water, she thinks, or an oracle's head rimmed on a plate by a cruel conjurer. Then, taking a breath, she taps down on photo and offers up herself to herself. Deborah Cox also explores conflicts of identity and the emerging self. Mirror. That woman in the pain watches me lining my eyes in black, arcing my lips with a seal, reminder of who I am. She helps me to forget. Odi ergo sum. I hate the human touch I feel. I hate the crowded street my feet recoil from the lines. I hate the warmed seat beneath the heat of the staring man that's beating me to what I am. A woman, blood let from a bruise with a sharp pen, buried deep inside the heart of the world I hate and hating am. Never mind. Milk in two pails, lolling on shoulder bricks, hardly a splash if she tries. Tummies rumble, rubble sewn in a bad wolf, now splitting her jeans, the wrong size. Leaden toes on hammered feet cling to the sand, lest they rise and fall on a nail. Such a pretty girl, a sight for sore eyes. Never mind. Trisha Broomfield is a poetry worth hearing regular. Here she is looking at conflicts in an earlier generation. All dressed up with nowhere to go. Perched on the back seat of the Zephyr, we watch the tilt of heads in front. Sense the silence in Mum's shoulders, the wordless exasperation in Dad's neck. Wanting to break the wall between them, we fight, Sis and I digging ribs, pulling hair, ears sharp, hoping for a united rebuke. We're all dressed up, with nowhere to go. Mum turns, stills us with a look. Dad, intent on driving, steers too safely. We failed. Mum, desperate to be swept off her feet, taken somewhere on a whim, sighs. Dad, needing to know where, when, what time checks his watch. He'll take her to the ends of the earth, if only she would point him in the right direction. But she can't. She doesn't know. We circle town, pick out pubs in passing, 
those with gardens for us. Now Mum says, if you two behave, we'll find somewhere. What about this one? Dad asks. But we drive past. The air fills with bricks. We're all dressed up, with nowhere to go. Next, Tom McCall's poem explores being different. Always left. I was born left-handed, and even though I was made to write with my right hand, I remain left-handed. And the only reason I say right hand is so that people in our right-hand dominated world can understand. For as far as I'm concerned, and as someone on the radical left, I'm not actually in possession of something called a right hand. In fact, there's nothing I'm more certain of than that, that I'm immutably left-handed, possessing a naturally on the left left hand and an involuntarily on the right left hand, and that the difference between these two left hands is the difference between being sober and drunk. Martin Jago's two poems are concerned with what happens to the perception of self or relationships between selves when someone becomes old, ill or dependent. Ode to Notes Before your eyes forget to read, you take to notes, the house adorned with pink and blue post-its, forget-me-nots on drawers for socks or pants, on cabinets for medicine, cupboards for saucepans, plates and mugs. But these are always notes to self, like the one stuck to the bathroom mirror that simply reads, you, and which curls up with time, dropping off when it's done. The new one that you pen, a reminder of sorts, still bears your humour in its kill this, and on that note, the one you leave for us. I find it in the pocket of your slacks, square of creased vellum, and know what's being unfolded before it's even open. And on the subject of farewells, what stares back from the page is that there's nothing more to write. Forecast. Good morning. Another grey and mostly cloudy start for caregivers up and down the country, but still a chance of sunny spells before some heavy breakfast squalls disrupt your morning with deeper, larger depressions set to sweep in from the kitchen after lunch. You'll notice that the breeze picks up, so stay within reach of facilities that may protect against this cooler, windier spell, and expect some icy stairs, followed by a frosty reception introducing milder air, with temperatures not much above zero degrees. This afternoon, intense high pressure gives way to lows, set to affect us through the weekend, a deep one pushing in through Iceland, cold fronts spreading outside of Greggs, despite strong westerlies and pleasantries, and medium McFlurries on the way back to the car. Throughout, we'll see some indignation, maybe even a sudden drop in patience later in the day, with onlookers set to move over higher moral ground. But by early evening, an unexpected change, with sunshine poking through and the haziness nostalgia brings, with a light precipitation of joy by dinner time. That's all for now. Jane Thomas looks at the shrinking of identity that comes with. Alzheimer's. This is from a collection I'm completing uh, on the subject of Alzheimer's. Um, this relates to identity in that in certain settings identity 
is reduced to merely a few words for an individual's life. Triptychs at Safe Haven Dementia Home. Next door is Mavis. Likes the colour yellow and Miles Davis. Used to be a nurse. The other side is Percy. He was in the army. Fought in France. Likes baked beans. Across the way is Mary. Likes teddy bears. Throwing punches and purple peonies. Upstairs are the old timers, but don't worry about the screams. They stop at six. In the kitchen is Harry, like special brew, B&H, and being on parole. Cleaning the loo is Tia, speaks Tagalog, vegan, misses her daughters. Front of house is Chloe, likes new look, amphetamines and bumble. Fill in three facts about your father and we will put it in the book and in an aluminium frame on his door. Welcome. Another poem on a similar theme from Helen Overall. Taking Steps Walking felt real, even when nothing else did. One foot in front of the other, an easy pace, a loped stride that carried her for miles. Sometimes she would stop if she saw someone she thought she knew, exchange a few words, watch that glazed-over look, mask a stranger. She found her way by means of the sea. Restless waves on her right brought her home. The key on a lanyard unlocked the door. Ordered calm, food in the fridge, her tapestry stretched on a frame, waiting for stitched attention. The chart filled with dots, dashes, diamonds. She would phone her niece before she set off, and again some hours later on her return. Good girl guide practice, never forgotten. Those calls a lifeline, voice warm as embrace, muddled words scrabbled into place, tangled threads of talk understood, straightened out. She walked further, faster after the move. The house full of people looked at her askance. A policeman would find her, take her back. At the next place, Doors to the outside world, bolted, barred, she could no longer roam free, had to make do with a turn round the garden. Although on a cooped-up, caged-in sort of day, one of the young workers would walk with her as far as a glimpse of the ink-blue horizon. All the while, names lost, faces forgotten, the slow unpicking of stitches, the tattered canvas held to the light, nothing but stars. And now it's a great pleasure to hear the celebrated Iraqi poet Adnan al-Sayeg reading from his long poem, The Dice of the Text. This poem deals with the oppression of identity under tyranny and colonialism. The poem is part translated by Jenny Lewis and the English 
version is read by her. مقاطع من نرد النص شعر عدنان صائغ على ما نرقق التاريخ وهو فض وعمى على ما نلمع الكلام وفائض عن الأيام والحاجة على ما تتنحنح المحبرة وفي الدم حبر كثير نحن المندحرين في التاريخ أيامنا جاهزة للركوع ويادينا للتصفيق والسلاسل وثوراتنا لم توصلنا سوى للمشانق أتلو تخيلاتي على المرة على يمين الزقورات وعلى يساري سجن أبي غريب نملأ رئاتنا بالهواء هوائنا المسروق من أنفاس القتلى كأن دورة حياتنا مسافة ما بين شيقين نطيلها بالاختلاسات أو بالتحسرات لكأن الورق مرايا المخيلة لكأن النص أحلامنا الحائضة لكأن زفيرنا حفر في الهواء أسحب ووات العطف من معلف اللغة وأنثرها كيفما اتفق كي تشدني إلى معناي الذي يتناثر تحت سنابك الكتب والبساطيل التي عبرت تاريخنا بالمقلوب Extracts from the Dice of the Text by Adnan Al-Saig Translated by Amani Alabdali and Jenny Lewis Why do we enhance history while it is blunt and blind? Why do we shine the words while they are in excess of days and of need? Why, when the inkwell coughs, is there a lot of ink in the blood? We who are crushed by history, our days are ready to kneel, and also our hands to clap, to be chained and our revolutions have only brought us to the gallows. I tell my fantasies to pass us by. To my right are the ziggurats and to my left is Abu Ghraib prison. We fill our lungs with air, our air which was stolen from the breath of the slain as if our life cycle is a gap between two gasps and we can prolong it by embezzlement or by size. As if paper is a mirror of the imagination, as if the text is our bloody dreams, as if our exhalation is a digging in the air. I pull and from the language crib and spread it anyway to pull me to my scattered meaning under the hooves of books and the boots which crossed our history in reverse.
Wonderful. And now Richard Lister with two poems. Afghan Woman The wind scours the rock into lines of sinuous sand. A woman walks in black, wrapped against the wind and the searching eyes of men who'd squeeze her shut. Yet her eyes see. Bulgari's Hands Turns out she does hand modelling, has nothing to do with clay-clogged nails, coil pots and selling for a tenor on a trestle table in the echoes of a Catholic church hall. So Anna's adopted, her hands moulded by a swirl of jeans from the streets of Mumbai, skin the colour of gulab jamun, fingers delicate and poised as ballerinas on point. That's why the camera's in close-up, her face cropped out, locked onto the Bulgari bracelet spun on her wrist, a fusion of culture and modernity, mother of pearl, carnelian, lapis lazuli. In the corner, the G4S security guard, solid as a lump of pummeled clay, eyes the door for strangers and watches her to ensure this model, paid by the scant hour, doesn't palm the prize. Finally, but well worth waiting for, Pat Winslow with four poems. A sin eater is a person who eats a ritual meal in order to take the sins of a dead person away and into their own body so that the dead person who is invariably rich can go to heaven. It's the spiritual equivalent of carbon offsetting, I think. It was a practice that was around in the 16, 17, 1800s in the UK and apparently the practice still survives in some parts of Upper Bavaria. The Sin Eater Say not that I chose this life, rather say that poverty chose me. If I take the groat for my pocket on entering their doorway, if I eat their bread and drain the ale bowl in one draught, it's so you, and others like you, won't fear the night. I keep your lover's twilight rosy, your hedgerows quiet. I give easement and rest to thee, come not down the lanes nor in the meadows, and for thy peace I pawn my own soul. Amen. Words to feed the superstitious. I have them off by heart. The rich won't trouble you from the grave, groat or no groat. What's dead is dead. It's the living you should care about. As for me, 
Hell is ignorance and want, not what lies beneath. I'm doomed, not damned, and your faith is drink and meat. Recently I was reading Tom Paulin's excellent sonnet in the Lost Province. I think it's often the case for me, certainly, when I read a really good poem, I find myself entering into a conversation with the poet. The poet and the reader has a conversation of sorts, even if it's just thought. But in this instance, it led to me writing my own response, another poem, Being British, 1975 and it's set in Belfast. In the lounge of the York, you're safe there. Spilt whiskey, an overturned table and chair. It only takes seconds to flare. I leave him staring at the mess he's made, head for the Ormer Road, the sandbagged rose and crown, don't go there. Cross the river, turn into Sunnyside, left onto leafy Derrimore where the soldiers never come, and stop at a pub whose name I forget, but all right there, where a man is playing the whistle. So I go in, order a pint, and sit at the bar, too pissed to notice the songs he's playing, till midnight... When rough hands hoist me by the oxters, fingers plunging deep into brachial nerves, and dizzy with pain, I surrender and stand for their queen. Living in Belfast left quite an impression on me. I loved living there. I met some amazing people from right across the six counties. Um, but again, the thoughts come back. I was uh, recently at an exhibition of um, Dia Alazawis at the Ashmolean in Oxford, and there was a tremendous piece of art, his artwork there, that immediately triggered uh, another memory from my time in Belfast. And again, it's a conversation. One action recalls another. This is called Some Other Game. I saw for myself one Sunday afternoon how close death can come when two teams faced each other on a rough patch of green somewhere near the Falls Road. I heard the thump of leather and hard pumping breaths as the men beat each other down from one end to the other. It could have been any local league, a good game before a shower and pint and the working week ahead. The soldiers were lying on their stomachs in the grass, along the touch lines and behind the penalty areas. The ball, needless to say, never went out of play. A slight pressure is all it takes to shatter bone and separate muscle from flesh. Make no mistake, the weapons were loaded, the ammunition live. Decades later, another sunny afternoon on a thin stretch of beach in the Gaza Strip, fishermen's sons were playing in bare feet, their eyes on one thing only, the ball, not the warship anchored off the coast. What were they thinking as they raced around, shouting and laughing and kicking up soft plumes of sand whilst the sea roared fabulous and blue behind them? The ball, that's all. 
It's what you do when you're nine years old or ten or eleven. How small we are when we're trapped in someone's crosshairs. How flat and cartoon-like. How brilliant the fatal burst of light. And how silent the shock wave of cinematic red and cafe workers' rescue attempts. Cue music, high fives, a leaderboard, rewards. And finally, a poem that is rather difficult, I think. Some things we might not want to think about. Sometimes I wonder how it feels to have someone else's heart beating inside your chest. It's an act of love, isn't it, to donate a part of you to another person? I knew a man who was waiting for a pair of lungs. He lived in a bubble of food trolleys and daytime telly. Masked visitors made him nostalgic for dogs and fish and chips. An act of love would have saved him. But some people withhold love if they think it's going to a smoker or a criminal. Today I discovered that keratoplasty leaves a star of tiny stitches inside the eye. Imagine how the world looks. I also learned that bombers die with such force their flesh and bones embed in victims' bodies. Organic shrapnels like rape. We have no choice. That's not far removed from a tattooed number, I'd say. What if you're the grandchild of Mengele or Pinochet? Does it trouble you we all share some DNA? That our atoms have been around for billions of years? The oxygen we breathe has already passed in and out of lungs and leaves. Photons bounce off every one of us. Their paths changed forever by our existence. They're captured by our retinas and encoded in our neurons as memory and sense. All living things have equal value in the end. We're not so special after all. Except perhaps where acts of love are concerned. That's it for episode 17. Episode 18 will be looking at illness and wellness. Submissions as soon as possible, please, to poetryworthhearing at gmail.com. More information about everything on poetryworthhearing.biz.